Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we're delighted to have Margaret Newton as our guest. Margaret Newton is the author of two bilingual collections of poetry in both Anisha Nabemoin and English, Waweni and What the Chickadee Knows. She's a professor of English and American Indian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where she also serves as director of the Electa Quinney Institute for American Indian Education. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to be here. Would you be willing to read the poem, What the Peepers Say? Sure. What the peepers say. Ishkwa bibun bi omagak, gawing gea bi abita, nibwaka mashkawajisidewat. Bipagiyam, ani bipagiyam. Namaza sijiwangek, agozimakaki, gi ningaziyam. Mi zagado deyang, mashkigong. Bipagiyam, ani bipagiyam. Dibishko de tibashka. Jabwibisa zogipok, zigwang, zibiskaj, midash, pipagian, ani, pipagian. Epichi, mada ogoyang, baswewe yang, besho ganawabmegak awiyang, wasa ganawabmegak awiyang, pipagian, ani, pipagian. After the winter waiting, no longer half frozen by design, our calling becomes all calling. Under the rippling bark, peepers have thawed to crawl into the swamp where my calling becomes your calling. A seismic sesh, a synaptic snowstorm of springtime repetition and your calling becomes my calling. As we drift away on our echoes, we are the details, we are the distance, and all calling becomes our calling. So beautiful. I love it. So this is from your second book of poetry, What the Chickadee Knows. And that book is broken into two sections. And this is from that first section of the book called What We Notice. And I love that this and other poems are in that section because that's what the poem calls me to do as a reader. And I wonder if we could just talk about the situation of the poem, what the peepers say, what a wonderful title. And I'm wondering what the calling is in this poem. You're right, Joanne. This section, A Mamanonendamong, What We Notice, is about the way we are in the world and being in the world is centered on who we are and how we communicate and who we are connected to because ultimately being a part of the world means noticing who you are in a relationship with so in the poem we think about the way that these little peepers at a certain time of the year are responsible for calling out the season and helping everyone else pay attention to what's happening. And so each of the stanzas ends a little bit differently and that calling serves a different purpose each time that it happens. And the reader 
finds themselves centered amidst the calls in different ways, which is hopefully what we all do when we notice actually where we really are and who sees us and who depends on us and who we see. That's great. And uh, just so all of our listeners are on the same page here, because I actually had to look up what peepers are (laughs) as I was thinking about this poem. And so I just want to make sure all of our listeners do know that peepers are, are basically a kind of tiny frog that's about the size of a postage stamp. And in the spring, they live in these temporary pools of water that's created by the thawing of the snow. And when those pools dry up in the summer, then they, they make their way into swamps. But each spring, though there are these tiny frogs, there's so many of them that they, they make this great calling that kind of announces the season, as you're saying. Yes, exactly. And I think that they are in Anishinaabe King, or the, the land where many Anishinaabe nations are centered around the Great Lakes in North America. They are the new year. And so there's this deep connection and this deep sense, as you say, of relationship between the sounds that we're hearing and our sense of connection to them. Yeah, definitely. The other things to notice are the way the little word bipagi, which was chosen because it is calling, but it also sounds so much like those little yeah. omakakiak, the little frogs, our term for that, the omakaki. And the first stanza also has in it bi omegak, and the bi is used often. It's a little morpheme that happens in pattern of words that often have to do with things being extended. Uh, when you say you're going to wait for something, we even use it in some of the words related to writing. So this little bi as a a sound in the poem for people who speak Anishinaabem, when I write them all in Anishinaabem one first, that's also partly what I was playing with. When we hear bitbagi, bitbagi, does that bring back ideas of the peepers? But it also connects us to other ideas in our, our language as well. Well, that's amazing. So there's a almost like an onomatopoeic quality. I mean, the way you're talking about sound and how it is central to, it informs the content of the poem is very powerful. I, I just want to bring in these lines I, I love from the introduction to your book, which, where you say, our, our world is shaped by the sounds around us and the filter we use to turn thoughts into words. The lines and images here were conceived first in Anishinaabemowin, and then in English. They are an attempt to hear and describe the world according to an Anishinaabe paradigm. And I, I just wonder if you could say a bit more about what that paradigm is and how we might begin to understand it. The simplest way to think about that paradigm is in a place of four seasons. We happen to have a language that has four verb types. One could debate for a long time how that might be related. Um, There's lots of places in the world where there are languages that have been in that place for thousands of years. And that's certainly the case with Anishinaabem when there was a migration from the east a little bit to the west. But that language has long been centered for thousands of years in the Great Lakes area where you experience four seasons. And there are these four verb types and this could be grand coincidence or it could be an inheritance from proto-Algonquian languages. There are, are a lot of ways that we look at the way we shape our language and the way that as we continue to use it, it shapes some of our thinking if we're paying attention to that. So when I start teaching language, I tell people to begin in the center. And when you write your sentences, the first thing you think is what's happening, what's the core verb? And then we build out, we have a language that's agglutinative. And so you add pieces to say, 
who is doing it. You add pieces on either side. We don't have a fixed syntax that is linear left to right. You build meaning from the center of the action. That's amazing. And are those four verb types present then in these four stanzas of this poem? They are. I think one of the things that you might notice when we talk about winter, baboon, that is something that just happens. When we talk about this calling, that's something that someone does. And so you can see that the change there, bibagi, is the verb in the middle there. And then when you hear young or young, it's a subtle difference, the two A's versus the one, you know who's doing it. So the young is saying we are doing it exclusive. Young with one A is saying we are doing it inclusive, which is actually also a difference we don't have easily in English. So you see the translation tries to allude to that. I think it was in your preface to Weweni, you wrote, the English version of each poem is not always a literal translation and serves primarily as a lyric explanation. Could you say a bit more about what you mean by lyric explanation? Sure. So an example would be in the first line in the Nishnabim when it says, Ishkwa bibon bi'omagak. And then I have to make a choice to translate that. Do I try to capture the sound of the alliteration, bibon, bi'omagak, where you've got the Bs and the short I versus the long I sound? How much of that can we pull into the English? Bibon is literally winter. Bi'omagak is a different word than we commonly might use for waiting. It still is waiting, but I would focus on that one because I was trying to pull a little bit of the alliteration over there. I don't have the same internal vowel rhymes because winter to waiting, you go from an I to an A. So it, there's always a choice, right? Where can I get the same meaning and as much of the sound as I can I rarely feel that the equations I've built in sound in the Anishinaabemwin can be replicated in the English, but it's, you know, it's a bit of a game trying to get it to work. In the English version, what I'm noticing is that it's still very, very sound-driven. So even that first stanza, after the winter waiting, no longer half-frozen by design, our calling becomes all calling. And what I notice there is, like at the beginnings of some of the words, that winter waiting, that repetition of the W, so there's a alliteration there, but also at the ends of the words, so frozen, by design, there's a, a sort of a lengthening of the sound there, and our calling becomes all calling, the repetition of calling. It's just so beautiful, and it feels like you're harnessing the power of each language to achieve some of those effects. A call implies or wants a response, where a peep doesn't necessarily have that implication. But when you call, you hope to hear something come back or you hope to find someone listening. And so much of this poem is about that, about finding the listener, about becoming the listener who hears and responds to the call that's being made all around us. And so much of the language and the rhyme and the assonance is a, is a kind of call and response. So we, we saw winter and waiting the, the the final sounds of frozen and design. But then in the next stanza, under the rippling bark, peepers have thawed to crawl into the swamp. 
where my calling becomes your calling. The call, again, echoes, but we have that word thawed and crawl and swamp, where these words and these sounds kind of build on each other and build a kind of, again, a kind of relationship, a seismic sesh, synaptic snowstorm, springtime repetition, your calling becomes my calling. So the language is doing, the sounds are doing what, in fact, the reflection in many ways of the poem is, is, is calling us to meditate upon. Yeah, it's good that that comes across. It's, you know, you write things and you wonder, will they be noticed, <laughs> right? There are some funny things like the seismic sesh. In English, that's just a lovely set of words I would not yeah. normally be able to include in conversation, but I can build into a poem and it, and it conjures a certain sound and meaning for me. Dittabashka is the word that is the seismic sesh. So sometimes there's multiple words in English that represent one word in Anishinaabemwin. And so in that sentence, the dibishku doesn't actually appear in the English, but to have the rhythm be similar, you have the lines compared the way they are. So dibishku, dittabashka is the seismic sesh. And they are parallel in some ways, but there are pieces that people would notice, oh, that's not exactly the same. If we could pause on the, on the seismic sesh for just a moment. What, what is a seismic sesh, first of all, for, for our listeners, just so that they're fully on board with the poem? And then also, what about that image resonates so powerfully for the calling becoming calling and so on? Our culture here is defined by the lakes and the Great Lakes, which are very different than any lake that most of us might know that is interior to the continent. That is a lake you might swim across or boat across or even just see across. When you're looking at the Great Lakes, you're looking at really what many people call the Sweetwater Sea. They appear as if they are one connected ocean. And we speak of them as Michigaming, one big freshwater entity with a watershed that it connects to. The concept of the edge of these big waters being able to ripple with a certain force is really what you could describe through science and maybe use the word sesh, or you could describe through story and talk about a vast underwater being that's whipping its tail. To say dittibashka, we have many words for waves. Ashka is a common ending when we're trying to describe waves coming in. And dittibe is that they're rolling or they have a certain rhythm to them. So that's a, a word in Anishinaabe, one that describes this event along the shore of a very vast water body, I guess. What I love about that image is the sense that, I mean, we're talking about frogs that are the size of postage stamps, but their calling and their collective calling is being compared to the power and size of the Great Lakes and their rippling along the shores. And so the, the kind of amazing scope of that resonance and that comparison is brought out here, which I, I really love. And I think, too, the, the sesh is always driven by changes in atmospheric pressure. And these would have been the signals. These would have been the way that if you were not able to listen to a weather report or look at a weather radar map, you would say, how do I understand what's coming? And to see the atmosphere change by seeing changes along the shoreline in the waves, I think that's very like the way the little peepers 
are coming out of literally being frozen because they actually freeze. That's what happens to them in winter. And so then their little bodies actually thaw and all of these are signals, whether it's a very tiny body or a large shoreline, they're signals about what's happening to our space we live in. Yeah, and I'm looking at how incremental the movement is from one stanza to the next as I hear you talking about the sage, how the peeper emerges in stanza one, you know, no longer half frozen by design. And then in stanza two, the peepers have thawed to crawl into the swamp. And then we have this synaptic snowstorm and springtime repetition. And then by the time we get to the final stanza, as we drift away on our echoes, we are the details. We are the distance. And all calling becomes our calling. It's an incredibly profound final stanza. That we in the poem, is the we partly the peepers and partly us collectively? When we talk about the we here, I think that it should be all sentience. Put this in a book where we're trying to learn with the chickadee nose, and I'd like to think that one way to view the we, we could be saying we inclusively the humans, but when we are you know, exclusively with the humans, but then when we're including everybody, we're including everyone else that's alive. And the fact that these peepers that are so small, the idea that their calling could become all calling, that's incredibly profound to me, that the smallest thing could demand this kind of attention from us. These are beings that, by design, the way that they pause and shut down in response to the atmosphere around them is to literally become frozen. And then they wait. And then they wake up and play their role in an immense way. And I think that's another lesson. I think that when I try to, like we were speaking about earlier, imagine what would I want the next generation to make sure they know that I feel I've learned from previous generations is we need to stop. We, we need to listen. Sometimes our job is to do nothing. And that's something that I'm not sure the world around us teaches us. So here we have an example of peepers who do nothing for a while. And then they do something quite amazing. Do you feel like reading this poem during a pandemic shifts things at all? So for example, as I heard you talking just now, I thought about that brief window of time at the beginning of the pandemic when we really could not do anything, and how quickly that transformed the world, which is to say, I remember very vividly accounts of some of the most polluted cities on the planet. Suddenly the smog lifted and people were able to see clear skies just within a few weeks of us stopping. And I I thought about that as I read this poem again. We too often think in terms of our own generation or just one generation before us or after. And that causes us to make many strange decisions uh, about our economies, our industries, our nations, our societies. If we were to say that our decisions need to be made in the context of a couple of thousand years forward or backward, we might decide things differently. And I think that's another thing that this poem 
tries to ask in some ways, you know, when we have an action and have to make a decision, we need to think about what are those ripple effects. And that's a a way that we have to be in the world that we can either listen to that or not. I think you're right. Reading in the midst of a pandemic, almost everything we do in the midst of a pandemic feels different. And yet people will look back on this time and ask us what we learn from it. And it can't just be how to respond to a disease. It also should ask us to reflect on how we spend our days and our nights and our seasons and our years and our decades and our millennia. It is amazing to think of the ways that in a very short time, decisions have been made to change the land, the landscape and the animals, the life around us based on a hierarchy that is clearly hierarchy understood only by one species. I don't think that the other species would agree, and there are many old, old stories in many, many communities across the globe that tell stories of different species and how they had to get along on Earth and how they discussed if one was better than the other. I mean, there's just many, many stories, and yet we seem to keep needing them to be told again because I don't know that we're listening. Well, with all of that said, we'd love to listen to this poem again. Would you be willing to read the the poem for us again? I'll read the poem again. And what I would say is that I would invite people who are listening and have reached the end of the podcast with us to join in. Because when I do read the poem in public, I always ask whoever's around me to join in. And when it gets to the last line and you hear the bit boggy, that just repeats. So if you are sitting there and you know that it's coming, by all means, add your calling to the calling that's in the poem. Agozimakaki idewak. Ishkwa bibun be omega kawin gea be abita. Nibwaka mashkawijisewat. Bipagiyan. Ani bipagiyan. Namaza sijawangek. Agozimakaki. Gi ningaziyan. Mi zagadore young, mashkigong, bitbagian, ane, bitbagian. Debishko, ditibashka, jabwebisa, zogipok, zigwang, zibkskaj, midash, bitbagian, ane, bitbagian. Epiche, madaogo young, baswewe young, beshoganawab mega kawiyang. Wasaganawab mega kawiyang, bipagiyang, ane bipagadiyang. After the winter waiting, no longer half frozen by design, our calling becomes all calling. Under the rippling bark, peepers have thawed to crawl into the swamp where my calling becomes your calling. A seismic sesh, a synaptic snowstorm of springtime repetition and your calling becomes my calling. As we drift away on our echoes, we are the details, we are the distance, and all calling becomes our calling. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for reading that again. Thank you, and thank you for being with us today. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I had not looked at this poem in a while, and so it was nice to see. It's a poem that my father would take me on long walks and we would listen to the peepers. And so it brings back really fond memories for me of walking with him in swampy, marshy places with boots on, getting muddy, 
and really understanding our place in the world. If listeners would like to get more information about Margaret Newton and her work, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. And you can also subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening.